Good morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, and hopefully you do, turn to Revelation 5. And we're going to cover the whole chapter. So chapter 4 we covered last week. And it was a short enough chapter for us to get through. And chapter 5, I think that we'll be able to cover it. So that's the goal. But the title for this message this morning is The Triumph of the Lamb of God. You know, sometimes I'll listen to sermons or I'll read them. And the preacher has some really creative sermon title. But I feel like when it comes to Revelation... There's no way I can make it more exciting than it already is. And so I'm just going to give a descriptive title, The Triumph of the Lamb of God, which is exactly what chapter 5 is about. Okay, so we're going to start in verse number 1. But before I read it, I want to pray. I got a lot of brain fog this morning, so I need the Lord to, to help me out. So let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the beautiful day we have. We thank you again for it. We thank you for those who are here this morning. We thank you for our health. We thank you, God, for all the blessings you've given us. And we ask as we come to your word this morning that you will speak to us, speak to me, God, too, and help me, Lord, to explain your word well. Give me the words to say, God, so it's not me, it's all you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. So the way I'm going to preach through this chapter is a little different than the way I've done it in the past. In the past, I've taken the whole text, I've read it all the way through, and then we've gone back and broken it down. But because this chapter builds until Jesus is revealed and the heavenly chorus shouts his praises, I think it just makes sense to take it verse by verse and we'll just add to it as we go along. So the first thing we see in this vision, again, remembering last week, the throne room scene, we have the throne of the Father. Um, I imagine this as being vertically oriented as I shared with y'all. I think that you have the throng of saints and angels forming sort of an outer ring around the base of this heavenly mount of assembly. And then further up, you have the 24 elders. And then further up, you have the four beasts or living creatures, as they're called. And then, of course, occupying the pinnacle is the throne of the Father, which we saw described in chapter 4, described um, as crystal clear, uh, red as sardine stone, and emerald rainbows surrounding it. Okay, so that just reminding you a little bit of some of these details so we can picture this in our minds. But John sees an additional thing that wasn't described in chapter 4. He sees in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside. Uh, in terms of background, uh, this scroll, you know, translated book, but this scroll uh, would have been written on the inside predominantly, but if there was room on the outside, often they would use the backside of the scroll. Some of the time though, uh, instead of really writing the contents on the outside, it would be more of uh, an identifier on the outside of the scroll. So that may be what's being referenced here. Um, as far as the identity of the scroll, we'll save that just for a moment. Um, suffice it to say for right now though, that these seven seals that are described are probably not all on the outside of the scroll as I've often imagined it when I've read this text. Uh, the seals are probably to where you'd break one, it rolls out so far, you break another one, it rolls out so far. And so until you break all the seals, you don't have all the scroll in front of you. And so that's probably the kind of scroll that we're looking at here. But it says in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So many people will render this differently. Some people think it's on the right hand. So instead of like the father clenching the scroll in his hand, it's an open palm and laying on top of that open palm is the scroll. But I did a really long study of this a long time ago. Uh, I read a dissertation by a guy who, while I wouldn't agree with him on a number of things because he was writing from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, he did his dissertation on this particular phrase because it's a very unique phrase. It's very rare. Uh, as far as I know, this is the only place uh, in the Greek New Testament that has this exact phrase which is translated in the King James as in the right hand. So basically when comparing different writings outside of scripture, Greek writings, our best bet in translating this is on the right side of. And so when John looks at the throne, he sees on the right side of the throne, this scroll lying there. Now, many people again, imagine it being in the hand of the father. And while I'm not going to argue with the brilliant minds who've translated it that way, interpreted it that way. 
there does seem to be equal evidence, if not perhaps better evidence, to suggest that John is seeing this scroll laying in a spot on the right side of the Father. And I'm going to try to confirm this with scripture today because I think that it's really insightful. So much of the throne room, whether chapter 4 or chapter 5, is based on stuff that we've already read about in the Old Testament. Okay, or we should know about. John is writing to people who he assumes, Jesus is writing to people whom he assumes know his word. Okay, they're believers, they should know these things. And so going back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31, if y'all want to turn there, you can, but I'll read it for you. But in Deuteronomy 31, 26, it describes the throne room, you could say, on earth. So we have the tabernacle described in the mercy seat is seen as the throne of God. He's enthroned above the cherubim. And so in Deuteronomy 31, 26, it says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. And so according to tradition, again, we're left with tradition here, but it's very old tradition. It seems to be pretty consistent, so I would deem it reliable. There's this tradition that John Gill mentions, if you look at his commentary on this verse, that there was a compartment on the side of the ark. And so sticking out of the ark, okay, forming sort of a, a separate compartment on the right side of it, there was another spot where the book of the law would have been either laid on top or set inside. And many Jewish writers actually will refer to this compartment as a second ark. So they would have the, the, the big Ark of Covenant in their minds, the ones that we generally think of with the cherubim over the top. And then on the right side, you know, where you would expect in the analogy, you know, the right hand of the father, okay, the, the place where Christ would be sitting in that spot, there was a second location where the, the book of the law would have been stored. And this book of the law would have been in scroll form, you know, given the antiquity of Deuteronomy, okay, they wouldn't have been writing it down in a book as we uh, usually understand it. And so it's interesting that on the right side of the throne here in heaven, the throne, which is described later on in the book as the Ark of the Covenant, on the right side, we have a spot designated for the sun and laying on that spot is this scroll. And so I think this helps us understand the meaning of the scroll somewhat. I do firmly agree with many interpreters who see the scroll as the title deed of creation. I think that using... Uh, the title deed of creation. So uh, in Jeremiah, uh, to give you an illustration of this, yeah, deed to the earth. So in the book of Jeremiah, they were going to be out of the land because of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah had a cousin who had this plot of land, which honestly, I mean, it wasn't going to be any good to anybody because everybody's about to be moved out of the land. But to demonstrate that God was going to bring them back and that this was his land and he was giving it to his people as perpetual possession, and that they weren't going to stay in Babylon forever, Jeremiah, he buys, he redeems this plot of land. And when he does that, there is a scroll that's made, and the way that it's described is remarkably similar to what we have here in Revelation chapter 5. So the way this scroll is depicted, it seems to be depicted in terms of a title deed. Now, since Jesus is coming to give dominion to the church over all the earth, and he's going to reign as king of kings over all the earth, then this title deed would not be just the earth, okay? It would be all of creation, because when we conceive of the inheritance, which uh, we'll one day receive, we often think in terms of the earth, because this is our home, this is, you know, the one that God beautified, it's unique compared to all the other planets that we know about, and so we, we generally think of the earth, I think that that's definitely included, but I would say it goes even beyond that, because... In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the heir of all things. Why? Because he created all things. And in Colossians 1, when it depicts him creating all things, it says all things in heaven, all things in earth, all things visible, all things invisible. So I think this title deed includes the earth most especially because that's going to be the seat of the throne. That's where Christ is going to reign, where we are going to be. But I mean, this includes the entire universe. All the planets, all the stars, all the constellations, everything is included in this. And everything except the third heaven has been infected or corrupted by the sin of man. I mean, in Romans 8, it says all of creation is in bondage to corruption because of mankind's sin. That means no matter where you go in the universe, the fall applies. No matter where you go in the universe, you're going to see the law of decay at work. 
And that shows, I think, that when God created Adam and he gave dominion to Adam over the earth, there was a whole lot more in store for mankind than just the earth that we live on now. I mean, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but I was talking uh, earlier this week uh, with you know some of my coworkers, and in 1 Corinthians 15, we were discussing our glorified bodies. And I mentioned how the glorified bodies that we'll one day have are called celestial as opposed to terrestrial. When Adam was given this body, we imagine is glorified, is beautiful, radiant, whatnot, but um, it was still terrestrial. It was still limited. But one day we're going to have celestial bodies that are like the angels. I mean, who are able to soar throughout the heavens. And so I don't know about y'all. That's pretty exciting to me. And so Jesus, he holds in his hand our birthright, the birthright of earth uh, in all of its restored beauty and perfection, uh, the birthright of Christ, um, which he has by right of creation and redemption. We're going to see that unpacked here. So not only does Jesus have a right to take the scroll because he redeemed us, but he also has a right to take the scroll because he created everything. So both of those things are brought out all throughout the New Testament. And we're going to see how John does that here. So the first point, okay, under the identity of the scroll on your notes is that the scroll represents the birthright that God has in store for his heirs. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you're an heir of God, you're his child. So this birthright, it sums up creation with all of its delights. And as I pointed out, going back to Deuteronomy, it does relate to the law. Now, how does it relate to the law, the book of the law? Well, God's blessings are always consistent with his holiness. And so, as we'll see, we don't have a right to this inheritance because we forfeited it. I mean, since Adam sinned in the garden, because of our sin, we have forfeited this inheritance. But Jesus, because he keeps the demands of the law, he perfectly fulfilled them as the second Adam on earth on our behalf. He has the right to go and take the scroll for us because he has fulfilled the law in every aspect. So in general, the scroll, I think, is the decree of God. That includes the blessings that God offers, but also the conditions that have to be met. So I've just described some of those blessings. You know, this heavenly body that we're going to have, this beautiful inheritance when the earth is restored, being able to soar throughout the heavens as the angels do. That sounds really exciting. It sounds like something that we all want to be a part of. It appeals to the longing we have that God put in us when he made us, but we don't have a right to any of it. And that's why as we continue to read, there's a hint of sorrow in this that thankfully by the end of the chapter, it's dispelled by Jesus. Being able to fly and soar, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, in, in a sense, they, they have a dominion that we don't, right? They're above us, but According to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to have those celestial bodies and soar like the angels. Um, so one more thing that I want to point out as far as Old Testament parallels, because there's so much stuff here as far as parallels with the Old Testament. Exodus 24. So last week I talked about the sapphire pavement that is under the throne of God. The way I envision it, I think the crystal sea is under the throne of God. Um, just like the sapphire pavement in Exodus 24 is under his feet there. So in Exodus 24, it talks about how the elders went up on Mount Sinai and they looked up above them and they saw God. They saw his feet in particular, and his feet were resting on a sapphire pavement that looked like the sky. So apparently they saw through this expanse, which was sort of like a ceiling above them, but it was a blue crystal expanse and God sat on top of it. Okay, so there's other parallels between Revelation 5 and Exodus 24. So we have the elders, okay, the elders of Israel. We have the elders here that are crowned in Revelation 5. Um, in addition to that, we have Jesus going up to where the throne of God is. And in Exodus 24, Moses was invited to go up to where God was. But even though we see that Moses is a type or foreshadowing of Christ as the priest, Moses falls short of the glory of Jesus. Uh, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. The first one is Moses was not allowed to see the face of God. So he was able to go up and approach God to go higher than the elders, as it were, but he still could not see the face of God. But Jesus in John 6, 46, he sent from God and he's the only one who has seen God. It says the one who is from him, he has seen him, but nobody else has. So Jesus is greater than Moses, of course, because he's God himself. No one could look upon the full glory of the father 
and to comprehend it and to experience it if they were just a created being. We see a reflection of it. Jesus sees it completely. Um, He's able to do that because he is God himself. A second contrast between Moses and Jesus is that Moses, though he brought down the law, just as Jesus goes up and he gets that inheritance to bring it to us, Moses goes up to get the law and brings it down to Israel. But Moses, just like the rest of the Israelites, was not able to keep the demands of the law. Of course, we know about how Moses, he, he struck the rock twice in anger, and because of that, he was not permitted to enter into the promised land, which is the inheritance of the Israelites. And so none of us would have a right to this inheritance. Even people as holy and as saintly as Moses wouldn't have it if it wasn't for Jesus going up and bringing it down for all of us, Moses included. And so we see a lot of similarities here between Exodus 24 and Revelation 5 because that mountain of Sinai in the Old Testament, it pictures this mountain in heaven, which we're all going to be standing on. Okay, I get chills just thinking about it. All right, so the next thing we're going to look at now is the plight or the sorrow of fallen creation. So look with me at verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And the point of this passage here is no created being has a right to what God wishes to give. Isn't it so interesting that this scroll who was it made for? Did God need to, to give this to the son? No, the son didn't need it. The son's God. He's perfectly sufficient in himself. The father, son, Holy Spirit. They didn't need to create. They did this to give it to us. The glory of God is that he made us to be recipients of his love freely. And he designed us to, of course, reciprocate and, and give that back to him, which we have not done. We've rebelled against him, sadly, but we see this tension here. God has this inheritance. He didn't make it for himself. He made it for us. But yet, no one's worthy to have it. That's the sorrow of it all. It's like a beautiful house built, everybody looking upon it and seeing its beauty and seeing all of its, you know, its comforts. But then no one's able to go into it and enjoy it. Okay, It's like that times infinity. No created being has a right to what God wishes to give. And that is what John is sorrowing over here. And y'all know the sorrow we all do. I mean, it's the sorrow of recognizing your sin and what your sin um, has done. I mean, your sin has contributed to this fallen world we live in. Even if we say, hey, we weren't like Adam and Eve. We weren't the ones who did it first. We've committed the same sort of sin, same act of rebellion over and over and over again. I think that I've done things that I would say was a lot more shameful than eating some fruit from a tree, you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like, Oh, that's, that's, you know, that's a huge sin. But I mean, how many times have we sinned in ways that in our minds are even worse than that? But the whole point of this is John is mourning the state of humanity. He's mourning the state of not just humanity, but creation. Every time I see an animal that dies, I don't know about y'all. Like I, I mourn over the death of animal life. I mean, sometimes I don't think about it as much, but you know, whenever I go hunting and I shoot an animal, yeah, like I, I love their beauty. I love looking at deer. And whenever I see a deer and, you know, and I take that choice, you know, for the right reason to, you know, harvest the meat. But when I take that shot and I walk up and I see that animal lying dead on the ground, like there's a part of me that feels sad about that. And I think there'd be something wrong with me if I didn't feel a little sad about that. But we should all mourn over the state of creation. And my question for, for us all today is this, do we cling to our hope of Christ so much that we despair at the thought of not having him for ourselves. I mean, does this really matter to us? I think that that really gives you a good indication of how close you are to God if you're in fellowship with him or not. Because believers who are not in fellowship with God, who maybe are being distracted by the world and living carnally, uh, I don't think that they have that sense of despair when they look around them at the world. Like a believer who doesn't want to be here, would, ra- would give up this world in a heartbeat because they want this, what's described in chapter five of Revelation. That kind of person's going to feel a little despair when they look around us. But praise God that that despair is washed away in the following verse. It says in uh, verse number five, as we see the worthy one revealed, one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book 
and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, I just, part of me wants to jump next to verse six and seven and describe Jesus. We're going to take it easy, take it slow, but let's think about these words here. Okay. Lion of the tribe of Judah. What does that mean? Well, there was a prophecy in Genesis 49 that the Messiah who's referred to as Shiloh, you know, the peaceful one, the one who brings peace, he was going to come through the line of Judah. So even back in Genesis, it's clearly indicated that of these 12 tribes, it would be through Judah that the Messiah would come. And Judah is called a lion's whelp or a young lion. And the standard for the tribe of Judah was a lion. Okay, so that's the imagery there. But this really bespeaks, it deals with Jesus's incarnate victory. And that's the first point. The lion of the tribe of Judah deals with Jesus's incarnate victory. We think of the lion, we think of a warrior, we think of a fighter, an overcomer, a conqueror. But of course, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, this is not really describing Jesus in his uh, pre-incarnate glory as much as him entering humanity through Israel, through the tribe of Judah, so that way he could conquer on our behalf. And so when we think about this, we see the humanity of Jesus shine forth, but the humanity of Jesus would not be sufficient to give us what we want to receive this scroll, to receive our inheritance. The humanity of Jesus alone wouldn't be able to purchase it for us. We need a savior who comes from above. So that's why if you keep reading in this verse, it says the root of David. Now, many people say, oh, well, root here could be easily translated as a shoot or as a branch. But if you read later on in Revelation, um, Revelation 22, 16, it calls Jesus the root and the offspring of David. Clearly a distinction is being made. So Jesus, yes, he does come through the lion of the tribe of Judah, or he comes through that tribe and he is the lion, but he's also the root of David. And that speaks of his pre-incarnate glory. So we see both of these coming together. Uh, sadly guys, and, and I want to touch on this a little bit because I, I found it very insightful. Um, I, I didn't notice this myself. Somebody pointed it out to me. I was reading a book and it talked about how in the middle ages, after the church really fought against heretics to hold up the glory of Jesus as God. And they succeeded in doing that at the council of Nicaea. And they, they took their stand, all these pastors from all over the world, by the way, I mean, there were pastors from, coming from France and, and great Britain and Alexandria, Egypt from all over. And they said, this is what we've always believed. This is what scripture teaches. Jesus is God. After that happened, it, it seems like in the Middle Ages, there was an overemphasis on the deity of Jesus. He was almost set so far apart from us. If you look at medieval artwork, he seems so angry and it's like he's this wrathful king and you don't want to get on his bad side. And that kind of fueled, I think, that overemphasis um, this works-based mentality of people in the middle ages. Like, listen, they knew what Kings were like and they knew that Kings were wrathful <laughs> and they were like, Jesus is a wrathful King. And they knew that he wasn't a tyrant. They knew that he was complete, completely righteous, but they also understood that they were sinners. They'd been told that by the church and that was correct. And so they were super sensitive to this image of Jesus being this, this King who was going to bring the sword down upon sinners. And there was this fear that just pervaded the church and of course that was stoked and, you know, encouraged by people that wanted to control the masses, you know, but grace was withheld from him. And those people are going to have to answer one day for withholding the message of grace from those people that they were pastoring. Uh, but uh, it, you start to get towards the later middle ages. You have some people like Bernard de Clairvaux and he started saying Jesus was a man too, guys. He, he was a God who became a man and he emphasized the love of God. And there were other people like Thomas Akinfis that focused on that personal relationship we have with God. And honestly, I think that was laying the foundation for the reformation, reformation, which was about to come. And then towards the end of the middle ages, we see that, that overemphasis on the kingship of Jesus, you know, that fear it, it segues, it eclipses into a focus on Jesus as the redeemer, Martin Luther, he really uh, just hammered home that Jesus was fully God who became fully man. And he came down to, to let the full wrath of God wash over him and, and break him. So that way we could be brought to God. And so Martin Luther truly took up the humanity of Jesus, which often had just been neglected for so long. And he really brought it front and center and said, guys, this is why we're redeemed. This is Jesus became one of us. And that fueled his whole doctrine of the grace of God, the faith of, uh, of the Christian that, you know, results in that sufficient grace that purges us of all sins. Like 
you know, that free grace theology that Martin Luther honestly wasn't even loyal to towards the end of his ministry. But at the very beginning, you know, that, that light of the Holy Spirit, which showed him that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, uh, that led him to see the humanity of Jesus in a new light. And uh, we just sang just a moment ago, a song which says, you know, you're a king, but you're my brother. And that was something that the reformers, they took back. And I'm glad that they did. But sadly, whenever the devil sees the church changing things for good and God at work in it, he takes things further than they ought to go. He twists scripture. We see him doing that when he was tempting uh, the Lord in the wilderness. He takes scripture and he twisted it. And he did that with the humanity of Jesus because after the Reformation, people started taking the humanity of Jesus and they emphasized it so much that they forgot about and even in some cases rejected his deity. And so you had a growth of anti-Trinitarian theology after the Reformation. The Reformers were staunch believers in the Trinity and staunch believers in the humanity, both of them together. There was a good balance there that they had, but it didn't last for very long before the devil was like, okay, we're going to push this further. Than it ought to go. We're going to push the humanity so far that we just leave the deity of Christ by the wayside. And so when I see this verse about Jesus as the line in the root of David, I see both of these things going together and we cannot separate one from the other. In Matthew 22, uh, along the lines of this statement that Jesus is the root of David, uh, remember when Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he said, you know, who is the Messiah to you? Don't you say that he is the son of David? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the son of David. And Jesus says, okay, well, I want you to consider a Psalm 110 where David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. If he's his son, then why does he call him Lord? Now, Jesus wasn't denying that he was the son of David. Okay. He was simply saying, you've taken it too far. Your emphasis on the humanity of Jesus has left you without, you know, the truth insofar as the Old Testament statements on his deity are concerned, like the Old Testament did teach that Jesus was God. I mean, Isaiah 9, 6 says he shall be called mighty God. All right. So they had thought so much about a material deliverance, deliverance from the Romans that they had a material Jesus. They had, uh, or not a Jesus, sorry, a material Messiah, one who was just a man like David, like Judas Maccabeus or one of the judges. Uh, but Jesus said, your conception of the Messiah is not high enough. And that's why they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Because, of course, he communicated that conception to them. Like he said, this is who I am. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And, of course, they were not willing to recognize him as God. And that's why they accused him of blasphemy. But we see both of these things coming together. Now, let's look at how the worthy one is described in verse 6. I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders. Notice he's occupying a place closest to the throne. Okay. The elders don't go any further than where they're put. The four beasts are closer, but Jesus is even in the midst of those four beasts. He is the closest to the throne. Okay. It, the Bible says in first Timothy that we cannot approach the glory of the father. It says no mortal being can. The reason that we can have a relationship with God is through the son who reveals the father to us. But Jesus is able to approach that glory without fear because he is completely worthy. So let's keep reading. It says that uh, he's in the midst of the throne and the four beasts in the midst of the elders. And there stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now this means whenever John sees Jesus, he is in the form of a lamb in some sense. Okay, uh, I've seen some people depict this as a lamb on four legs. I've seen some people depict him as having like the head of a lamb. I think that makes more sense, given that we have the four beasts with the four vases. I think Jesus here, his visage is that of a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Um, is this literal? Is this literally what is going to be seen by us one day? I think so. I think so. Now, Jesus can change his visage. I mean, when he was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says he changed his form. Okay, to where they didn't recognize him. So Jesus can do whatever he wants here for the purpose of... He, there's actually an interesting article I read a while back, and it was like Jesus, the shapeshifter. And it was talking about some of these interesting texts. But um, yeah, I mean, Jesus, he's able to take on any form he wants. Uh, not only is he in a glorified body like we'll have one day, he's creator of the universe. And so here he's taken this form because he wants to communicate, obviously, that the reason that we have a right to our inheritance is because he bought it for us as the lamb of God who shed his blood. And it says here, 
having seven horns and seven eyes. And the seven eyes are defined as the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. We've already talked about that. Seven spirits, it refers to completion, perfection. This is referring to the uh, many graces or operations of the Holy Spirit. Um, and interestingly, for those people who might be listening to this and you're not convinced that Jesus is God, I want you to consider how in John, when Jesus said he's going to go up to heaven, when he's going to heaven, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he said, the Holy Spirit is not going to speak of himself. He will only reveal what I give to him to reveal. Now consider that. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Now explain to me how Jesus could have the sovereign right to send the Spirit of God into the world if he was just a man. It's impossible to consider it any other way. And so Jesus is described here in these terms uh, referring to substitution. So on number four for your notes, the lamb having been slain, it tells us of Jesus's substitution now he took our place the horns tell us of his omnipotence seven horns horns all throughout the old testament especially in the psalms you'll see it a lot horn of my salvation strength jesus doesn't have some strength he has all strength all seven horns complete omnipotence the power to create the power to restore power to redeem and the eyes represent omniscience slash omnipresence because the spirits go throughout all the earth in the spirit, the son is present. So I can say Jesus is in me because the spirit is in me. Just as the father and the son are one, the son and the spirit are one. And so if the Holy Spirit is in you, Jesus is in you. So he has all power and he's everywhere. Okay, so he's no mere man. And he uses his power according to knowledge. In Colossians 2, 3, uh, these seven eyes remind us that Jesus has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows everything there is to know. And that infinite knowledge should be a great comfort to us whenever we ask him in prayer to do things in our lives, because we know he's not going to be blindsided by anything because he knows all the factors. He knows all the, <laughs> the contingencies, the what if questions, he knows everything. And for those who love God and go to him in faith, he works everything together for our good. Um, but one thing I want to also mention about him as the lamb and the substitution before we move on. Uh, I'm seeing a trend today which is distancing itself from the reformed doctrine of penal substitution. Penal substitution uh, is a view of the atonement, which the Bible endorses. Okay, so I hate to even just call it a view of the atonement. It's what scripture teaches. It's the gospel. Penal substitution says that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for us. That whenever he was slayed, um, just as it says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to smite him. It, it pleased the Lord, the Father, to slay Jesus. Not because he enjoyed putting his son through such torment. Okay, It was a sacrifice even for the Father to send his son. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Like he gave him up. Um, I'm sure the Father was not eager to see his son experience his suffering. But it pleased God to do that because that is what it took to save us. For God so loved the world that he was willing to sacrifice his only son to pay for our sins, to give us life everlasting. And so whenever I see people challenging that because in their mind it's too bloody, it's too angry, it just seems too dark, that's the darkness of sin. That's the justice of God. That's what we deserve. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus he endured the affliction of hell. He didn't go to hell and suffer. So let's clear that up right now. Whenever Jesus went to the place of the dead, as it's described in first uh, Peter three or in Ephesians chapter four, Jesus was preaching victory because the victory had already been accomplished. Okay. All the suffering Jesus experienced was at the cross because he said it is finished. No more to be done. It's done. All right. So Jesus suffered the wrath of God, which is what hell is all about. Hell's a location, yes, but it's a location where unbelievers suffer that wrath. And Jesus, he suffered that wrath of hell at a different place. Not in hell, he suffered hell on the cross. And so I just want to really hammer that home, guys, because uh, while I don't like to think about that, I don't like to think about hell, I don't like to think about what Jesus experienced on the cross, I'm thankful that he did. I'm thankful that he did, right? I mean, it's it's a painful thing. I mean, I think y'all can understand that. Whenever you you know see Jesus on the cross depicted in movies or in pictures, uh, 
it speaks to you because you realize what was going on. You realize this wasn't just a man being crucified. That's bad enough. But he's suffering so much more we can't see. And he was doing that because of me, for me. And, and so I, I that's the most precious thought here. Um, and I'll, I'll never let it go. And if you're listening, hopefully you won't either. But let's move on now to uh, number five, the song of the redeemed and their ministers. In verse eight, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and 20 elders fell down before the land, lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Think about that, guys. Those are our prayers. Like they're being stored in heaven. And, and these elders here, these overcomers who have this right, this reward to sit in this position, they, they don't just sit in this position to gloat. They serve. What do they do? They, they have these vials that contain our prayers. And when they cast them forth, when, when they bring them before God's throne, before the lamb, guys, that's my prayer. The prayers that I'm praying now in my life, that God come back soon. All right. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for my sin. And, and all the other things that I've said in my conversations with him, all of these are coming to a head. All of these are being fulfilled. They haven't happened yet. I, I'm not going to be fully satisfied until Jesus comes back. I don't know about y'all. All right. I want my glorified body. I'm glad I'm justified, but I want my glorified body. I know that I'll never be finally fulfilled, fully fulfilled until he comes back. And whenever he takes that scroll, guys, all the prayers, I think we're going to hear them. I think we're going to hear him. I think we're going to hear whisperings of him. This is not something the text says, so it's speculation, but I just feel like we're going to hear these prayers that were prayed to God. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing it guys. I'm doing it right now. So Jesus is given the glory of the redeemer. It says in verse number, um, sorry, verse number nine, it says, they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto God, our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Notice it says that they sing a new song. Guys, this song, while we can sing it now, you know, and there are hymns that are based on this, okay? We will sing it in a way then that we will have never sing it until that point. I mean, we can sing it now, but we're not in heaven now. The scroll is, what's that? The hymn? Hebrew. You think it might be Hebrew? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Um, I think that I personally believe that Hebrew is the original language. I think yeah. that's, yeah, I think that's rational view to hold. But it does say here, you have redeemed us out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And I think that it would give so much glory to God. Um, the beauty of it would to consider that all these different languages, some of them may not sound very pretty to us, but I mean, that all these people from all these different languages, they, they're giving praise to God in their heart language. Like English is my heart language. Okay. I like learning languages. Okay. I think it's fun. But if I was going to talk to God in prayer and I was going to sing to God from my heart, English is the natural way I'm going to do it. And I feel like everybody is going to be singing this song from their heart language. Uh, but let's keep reading. Notice how the angels are praising him. It says in verse 11, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and um, the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But I know that while it's true that we we'll sing this song in a way that angels can't because we've experienced redemption. I want you to consider that the angels here are singing and it's not something they're just going through the motions. Like redemption is precious to them too. Redemption is precious to angels. And I think, do we who are saved, do we appreciate salvation less than the angels do? I think sometimes we do. I think sometimes we get so distracted and we get so um, desensitized just hear it over and over and over again that I feel like sometimes angels, they're singing about redemption more passionately than we are. Mm -hmm. And they do. And that is something that I consider. They do have a view of things that we don't have. Right. I mean, so yeah, we can say that they can see things that we can't see, but isn't it equally true that we've seen things that they haven't? Isn't it equally true that we have seen God and experienced God in a way that they never will. I think about how in uh, Hebrews, it says that he didn't help the angels. 
he didn't take their nature in Hebrews 2.16. Instead, he took on the son of man, the, na- the nature of the sons of men. He became our brother, not the brother of angels. And then I think of 1 Peter 1.12 when it says the angels look upon this stuff diligently. They're interested in it. Like, if we are not singing praises to God with more passion than the angels, there's something wrong. Because we have even more reason to praise God as our Redeemer than they do. But yet in heaven here, Jedediah, stop. But even here, when it describes God being praised in heaven, the land being praised in heaven. I mean, it emphasizes the fact that around the throne are all these angels and they're singing just as loud as the saints are. They're not singing. Well, it does. It says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. Sorry. um, It says, okay, sorry. Verse verse 11. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the thrones and the beasts and the elders saying with a loud voice. Okay. Saying with a loud voice, singing with a loud voice. Uh, I wouldn't split hairs on that one. Well, you know, Ben Mock said angels don't sing. Well, that's that's wrong. That's right. absolutely that's wrong because creation. in yeah, it does. It yeah, says like, in Job, it says they sang in creation. Yeah. yeah. They so say, oh, they did. They never sing. Well, uh, I had a pastor sing. tell me that the angels didn't sing. Uh, that when they came, when Jesus was born, the angels came and gave glory, and it doesn't really say they were singing. Yeah, I think that's. Maybe. Okay, but we do know in Job for sure they sing whenever God founds the earth. In Job, yeah, it says the the sons of God, the morning stars sang. So, but uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's keep uh, let's keep reading. So we're gonna look at the last two verses here, verse thirteen and fourteen, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard. I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. So a couple things to note here. First, it does mention everybody. Okay. So on the earth, under the earth, I think that the full fulfillment of this won't be until after the final judgment. Okay. So I think that when he takes the scroll, this is sealing the deal. Like he's about to come and take back creation. I think we're going to sing at that point in time, right then and there. Mm. But I think that John in this vision is seeing even past that moment that after the rapture, we're before the throne. We praise God. We praise Jesus. When he takes the scroll, he's seeing even past that because he mentions here, everybody, those that are under the earth would be those spirits that are in prison. It would refer to uh, unbelievers who will acknowledge Jesus as Lord one day, like it says in Philippians chapter two. So I think this is, it's looking even past the circumstances surrounding uh, John right here in this vision. But uh, we will certainly be singing as soon as he takes that scroll, no doubt. But uh, all of creation will acknowledge what is said here of the father and the lamb eventually. Um, we know that even, I believe even the devil himself is going to get down on his knees and confess Jesus as Lord. Um, again, I, I believe that Philippians chapter two says that clearly. And so everyone's going to acknowledge the truth of this, but notice that it says it's given to the lamb as well as to the one who's on the throne. So the last point, uh, number six is Jesus is given the glory of the creator. So point five was Jesus is given the glory of the redeemer because by his blood, he has redeemed us. But here Jesus is given the glory of creation. It says every creature, all right. In verse 14, every created thing is giving this glory to the father and to the son. There's no glory that surpasses this. So they're literally speaking in such a way that you can't imagine a glory a glory greater than this. And the people who deny the deity of Christ have a problem because the highest glory is given to the Father and to the Lamb Question. and to the Son. Yes. So John is speaking. He is not mentioning the Holy Spirit. So he's not mentioning the Holy Spirit being visible, but present. So that's a great question. Um, because the focus of this scene is the throne. And the Holy Spirit doesn't have a place on the throne. Um, I, I guess it makes sense that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be mentioned directly. But I mean, the Holy Spirit is mentioned as the seven eyes, and so, and so, 
yes. Spirit. So if the seven eyes are the spirits and they're seen as part of the lamb, then all the glory that's given to the lamb would also pertain to the, spirit. the spirit. Yeah. Um, this doesn't in any way downplay the role of the spirit in salvation. It doesn't downplay the role of the spirit in creation. We see those clearly taught in scripture, but, um, it's, it's interesting, um, how the new Testament does teach the personality of the spirit. The spirit is a, he He's often referred to as a, he, uh, the Holy spirit has a will. It mentions the Holy spirit gives gifts as much as he wills to as many as he wills. And so we, we have the Holy spirit possessing a will. The Holy spirit is referred to in personal terms. Uh, but the Holy spirit is not someone that we see Christians praying to in the new Testament. The Holy spirit's more like he's in us or we're in him and uh, we pray in him and we pray through the son or in the name of the son to the father. Now, occasionally we do see the son being prayed to like we have Paul praying to the son. He prays to the Lord and the Lord answers and the Lord in that context is Jesus. So we see the father being prayed to, but mainly, uh, mainly it's the father and occasionally we see the son. We never see the Holy Spirit prayed to because the Holy Spirit's really the one who groans on our behalf. He's almost seen as like right next to us. And so rather than praying to him, we're praying to God and the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He's our comforter that takes those things to God when we can't communicate uh, our own minds to him. Um, and so, yes, the Holy Spirit, because he is one with the Son and the Son is one with the Father, any glory that is given to the Father must be given to the Son. Um I think that that's really important to understand people who deny the Trinity. They cannot really praise God at all. It's impossible because they're trying to praise the father without praising the son. You can't do that. You cannot truly worship the father without worshiping the son. And you so can't truly, don't that's what I'm saying. They, 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 well, they, they they, yes. So they don't. And that's what John teaches. He's like, you think that you worship the father. You don't, you have to worship the son in order to worship the father. And the, yeah, absolutely. And so, he says, you have to believe that I am he, or you will die in your sins. So, I mean, yeah. And Psalm, the, yeah. The, yeah. Yes. Let's see. Kiss, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That's Psalm two. So when it comes to the father, he's like, you cannot praise me. I will accept none of your praise. If you don't give the son the exact same praise, he demands it. And that's why in, in uh, Philippians two verses 10 through 11, Whenever the son is praised as Lord and given the highest name, the name of God, and everyone's bowing down before him, it says it's all to the glory of the father. The father is pleased when we give the fullest glory to the son. On the fill-in, yes. is it redeemer and creator or is it redeemed yes. and creation? So Jesus is given the glory of the redeemer. redeemer. Yeah, the redeemer. So he's seen as the redeemer and Jesus is given the glory of the creator. Um, now there's one more thing I want to point out and then we'll wrap it up because those, uh, sloppy Joes are calling to me, but, uh, in revelation chapter five, uh, verse number 14, it says and the four be said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Now, something that's interesting, if you have a different Bible translation, uh, the worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Um, it's going to be different. It would say the 24 elders fell down and worshiped, uh, but the hymn that liveth forever and ever is found in the Texas receptus. And, uh, I've seen online, uh, cults who would point this out and say, ah, oh, see right there. It's, it's not given the same glory to the son that's being given to the father. But, um, that's not a good argument at all. Because if you read the Greek, and this is, again, something that, you know, I depend upon people who are a lot smarter than me. But uh, in the Greek, as Henry Alford points out in his commentary, um, him who liveth forever and ever is called anarthrus. Okay, it means when it says the one who liveth, okay, it doesn't have an article before it. So if it had an article, it would be pointing back to one person. Okay, so it'd be pointing back to the father, pointing back to the son, but it's left out of there purposely by John. Because he's wanting this statement, the one who liveth forever and ever, to apply to everybody who is just praised. And of course, everybody who was just praised was the Father and the Son. And so Jesus, 
he lives forever and ever just exactly the same as the father does. And the Greek is indicating this, even if the English isn't obvious to us, but Jesus, who is one with the father lives forever in the same sense that he does. And, uh, and if this wasn't the case, by the way, we would have no redemption. So the cult, the cults who deny the deity of Jesus, uh, they're denying their own salvation because in Hebrews chapter seven, verse three, Jesus is called that Melchizedekian priest. And our redemption is based on his priesthood. If we want a salvation that's going to last forever and that's eternally secure, it has to be an eternal priesthood, doesn't it? Well, it says that in the genealogy of the Old Testament, it says that Melchizedek has no mother, has no father, he has no beginning, and he has no end. That says that he was made like unto the Son of God. So that means that Melchizedek was made to look by the fact that the Old Testament left out that information. Melchizedek was made to look like Jesus who has no beginning and he has no end. And so in chapter nine of Hebrews verses 12 through 14, I encourage you to look these up. It says we have an eternal redemption in Christ because he offered himself by an eternal spirit. So when Jesus gave his life, it was not the life of simply a man dying for men or simply a human dying for humanity. It was the life of the God-man offering himself up freely by his own eternal spirit, by his own divine nature. That's why our redemption is precious. That's why it's eternal, because the one who shed that blood was himself eternal. And so, um, again, I I feel like I I can't do this justice. I just encourage y'all to read this text over and over again. I plan on reading it um, until the day I die or Jesus comes back. Because this is one of those few passages in the Bible where I am present, even if I'm not named. Think about that, guys. This is you. When it says everybody's saying, when everybody's singing, okay, those words apply to everybody that has been taken in the rapture. And if you believe in Jesus, that's talking about you. And so I'm going to get some good practice now until I get to do it then. But God bless you. Hopefully you were encouraged by this message and, you know, join us again next Sunday for the next lesson back in 1997